Well, so far, the, wo- the weather um, over the summer has been great. Cool weather. So far, a good fall. I know the last couple of weeks, I've just enjoyed this time of the year. Um, the things that you get used to when you're in a particular area, especially the weather, uh, I don't know, you, they just become a part of your life, and you don't even think about them so much. And there's supposed to be rain tonight, and you know, I don't know how many of you are ducking for cover, and you know, maybe you're going to get out of here a little early, but probably not, because rain is something we deal with here in Georgia. Um, tornadoes, you kind of get accustomed to tornadoes. Uh, here, um, when, when I lived in Arkansas, tornadoes were a bigger deal because to, when a tornado hit, you had to go to a shelter, so you had to like go outside of your home instead of into a basement where things are safe. Um, and so you take some things for granted. Now, when we moved, my wife and I moved to the West Coast, to California, um, weather is just different there. Uh, weather is beautiful there, but you have a different ball game when it comes to the things that are considered natural disasters. One of those, I mean, most people, when you think of natural disasters, are, are earthquakes in California. And um, while they can be severe, um, we encountered a couple kind of minor trembles, the this, this seven years that we were out there, but, but really nothing major, and it is can, kind of unsettling. But the biggest natural disaster that my wife and I encountered when we were there is wildfires. I don't know how often you think about that, but um, when I first moved to San Diego, the week that I moved there, uh, a wildfire hit San Diego, and they had to evacuate the area I lived in. Um, I was actually flying, so I didn't experience that. When I came back, there was uh, ash all over my car, which is, which is kind of interesting. Um, towards the end of our stay in California was uh, another bout with wildfires. Um, and when we were there, the last year we were in, in California, uh, the station fire uh, hit, and it, was, it took out about 150,000 acres and where it started was only a couple miles from where we lived. In fact, where it started was actually in the school district where Sarah taught. Only a, she taught up in the, the mountains, and uh, a couple miles up on the peaks is where the, the, the fire started. And actually, um, some of the students uh, in her school, their families, lost homes due to the fire. And it was just an eerie sight. When you look outside at night, the hills just glowed orange. I mean, we went on the roof of our apartment building and kind of watched it because it was just a it's just eerie, and so the, the, the skies are gray, it's, it's, instead of clouds, it's, it's smoke, and again, that ash kind of settles on your car like snowflakes. And once the fire disappeared, it seemed like all was, was back to normal. That's actually when one of the most vulnerable times are for those that lived in the mountain area, because after fire season, which is typically September, it's actually one of the hottest times of the month, and you have the Santa Ana winds blowing in, things dry out, so you have a fire season. Rains are actually when, uh, when uh, during the season, kind of a little bit later, towards December. And so on schedule, the rains came in. From here, we don't really worry too much about rain. California, rain is a bigger deal. But when the rains hit an area that has been hit by fire, it is something that can be completely devastating. And the people were bracing for what was going to happen. Because when all of the vegetation has been burned off, a couple things happen. One, the ash that kind of floats on your car and, and in the sky, it actually clogs the soil. And so it doesn't soak up anything, any of the rain. So any water that starts uphill just kind of quickly picks up speed. The other thing is the vegetation kind of stops the rain from hitting the ground and soaks it up you know, on its way, way in as well. But the third thing is that the, the, the plants and the bushes and the grasses, those things, they actually act as an anchor system for the earth. And so once some of this water picks up steam, it gets enough momentum behind it that if that anchor system isn't there, it washes the mud away and actually forms rivers of mud. And these rivers of mud act just like water when it hits a home. And so it'll flood the home. But the water rushes out and the sediment stays in. So some people's homes, they heard a rushing of something coming in and they would run out. And some of them made it, uh, escaped. Most of them kind of prepared for this. But when they went back in their homes, they would have five feet of of mud just in their house. Some of them saw like water and mud coming through the the fixtures of their home and, and ran for it. We were at the bottom of the mountain, a few miles down, and a river of mud came down the, the, um, the main passageway, and picked up cars, and uh, even these, uh, these cement barriers, just picked them up and threw them down. It was just a very bizarre sight to see. But as I was thinking about kind of um, this physical thing that happened um, when kind of disasters hit in our lives, sometimes we think that, you know, one disaster hits, 
okay, I weathered that storm, and then I'm ready for the next one. And often we don't even think about the next one that's coming. Once the people knew about the fires and they, they dealt with the fallout from that, the next storm kind of came in. And the thing that caused most of the devastation was a lack of an anchor system for the plants that would hold the, the um, soil together. And it's kind of that idea that I want to talk about tonight is what is that which holds our kind of anchor system? What is our anchor system that holds us together when calamities strike? Now, in Paul's letter, you can turn to the, the book of Philippians. In Paul's letter to the Philippian church, he, he reveals to us two principles that will help us to face life's um, difficulties, life's troubles, head on. And it'll give us some principles and anchors to kind of tie our life to so we can be ready when these storms hit. Turn to Philippians 4 and read verses 4 through 7. And those verses say, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. Well, the the two principles or anchors that Paul gives to weather life's storms is first is always give praise to the Lord. And secondly, always give prayers to the Lord. Well, in the first, the first couple of verses, in verses 4 through 5, we see always give praise to the Lord. Now, what does Paul mean when he says, you know, rejoice in the Lord always? Again, I will say rejoice. Um, to rejoice means to be filled with joy or to be glad. And here it's given as a command to believers. So a follower of Jesus Christ is, being, is told to rejoice and to do so continually. Well, why do people rejoice? Why does somebody you know, respond to joy? Well, a person often rejoices when they hear unexpected, pleasant news. You know, for, some, for example, Joe landed the job that he's been interviewing for. And you feel like, that's great, Joe, you got the job. A person rejoices when they find relief from some sort of calamity. You know, the, the tests have come back and they're negative. And you feel that sense of relief. Oh, thank God. Tests are negative. A person rejoices when their favorite team wins. A person rejoices when their best friend gets engaged. A person rejoices for a number of reasons. People typically rejoice when you know something anticipated, either whether it's anticipated by faith or just something that happens unexpectedly that they weren't even thinking about, comes to be realized in a positive way. Now, hardly a person rejoices when they get something that they were expecting. If I beat my five-year-old son in basketball, I don't rejoice, because that would be mean. Now, if my son beats me in basketball, he rejoices. And why does he rejoice? Because something that he was anticipating, maybe unexpectedly, finally beating me, that happened. And it ended up as a positive result for him. You know, a dad will rejoice when he, in his daughter's wedding. Now, there's been planning that's been involved, and for months that he knew that it was going to happen. But on that day, that expectation, something that he had been waiting for, is finally realized, and it comes to fruition. He can only imagine it, and now it's there. Now, our life is filled with moments where we don't know what happen, is going to happen next, Yet we get into routines and kind of, you know, uh, typical patterns of life. You get up, you get dressed, you eat breakfast, you go to work, you come home, you go to bed, you get up, you know, all the same things. And it just becomes cyclical, right? You do the same thing kind of every day and we get on our routines. But there's many things that we don't know how they're going to play out. You know, you don't know how, are you going to have the job that you have in five years? Are you going to be living in the home that you're going to be living in the next ten years? And more significantly, are, are, the, are the children that I have, are they going to be walking with the Lord when they grow up? You know, maybe you think, like, will my marriage continually grow stronger as we get older together? 
And it seems as we get older, changes, they just occur more rapidly. And for most of us, we're just seeing what God is going to bring us and what, what's just going to happen next. But unfortunately, most of the times when we say, what are the times that you are filled with joy and you rejoice, we only think about the times that bring us pleasure or unhappiness. But biblically, that's, that's incorrect. It's incorrect. And if we look just kind of a quick survey in the book of Philippians, I'll, I'll go through a couple, but if you turn to chapter 1 in Philippians, now Philippians is known as, as a letter of joy because Paul repeats this idea of, of rejoicing throughout. But if you look in verse 18, uh, Paul is respond to, he, he, he's giving a response about preachers who preach the gospel with misguided motives. And this is what he says. He says, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice, yes, I will rejoice. So Paul is rejoicing when a pastor who preaches the gospel is doing so for self-serving reasons. But he gets the gospel right, and he preaches it. John Calvin said, For God sometimes accomplishes an admirable work by means of wicked and depraved instruments, one thing contented him. If he, Paul, saw the kingdom of Christ increasing. Now, this doesn't mean that Paul is you know, justifying and condoning their behavior, but he's saying, you know, even if they're doing it for selfish reasons, if they get the gospel right and people are being saved, well, praise God for that. Praise God for that. In chapter 2, Paul says, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Now, being poured out as a drink offering, you know, is, is not something that sounds like it's fun, you know, something that's enjoyable to do. It means he's expending his energy for their sake. And he rejoices that he can sacrifice himself for the good of the Philippian church. Essentially, he's saying, it is my joy to serve you. Now, two other times in Philippians, Paul rejoices over the ministry to the church, and so we see that theme there. But he doesn't just stop here in Philippians. This is not just like he was in a good mood at this time. He, he speaks in, in Colossians 1.24. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Paul rejoices that he can suffer because Christ has suffered. We start to see a pattern that specifically Paul is rejoicing in conjunction with the suffering or the pain or the displeasure that most people would normally experience in life. Oh, and, and by the way, I, I didn't mention this, but, but Paul is in jail right now. All of these things he's speaking is in a prison, right? He's, he's not, he's not, he doesn't have his freedoms. He is under house arrest. He's not on some sabbatical at the beach. But he was full of joy, nonetheless. So let's take a pause. I mean, does this reflect our attitude? You know, are we rejoicing in the energy that we expend on serving others? Or do we complain about how tired we are? Are we rejoicing in the sufferings we face because we know that Christ suffered more And we feel like we're able to even share or partake in the sufferings that he had on our behalf. Are we rejoicing that even though another church may not be preaching a message that we like, that they're still preaching the gospel? I mean, these are hard things, but they're they're things that we need to kind of keep in check. Well, always giving praise to the Lord for what he has done, it anchors us to him, to the Lord, and our foundation. I use the term anchor because an anchor holds fast one object to another. When we're anchored in the Lord, we are tethered to Him and we are stabilized. The ground that we stand on is secure. If we were a tree, you know, our roots would penetrate down deep into the earth. And rejoicing and praising is one way we stay affixed to the loving care of God who can bear the weight of anything that we face. Even though we don't know what is going to happen next in our life, 
He does. James says, consider all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. I mean, how many of us are praising God when calamity strikes? Now, some of you may read Paul, and you may think, well, it's easy to write a letter and just say this. I mean, honestly, it's easy for me to come up to a pulpit and to preach this message. This is something we're supposed to do. And as much as I exhort you to kind of check your heart, I mean, this is something that all this week that I've, when I've been thinking about this, this can tell me pounding in my head, how much am I doing this? Because it's only when those problems strike in our life that we'll really know if our beliefs really are what they are in reality. I mean, that's the one reason that God brings us trials in our life. To allow your beliefs to have a full encounter with real life. And the Philippians knew that Paul was for real. We should too, because his life, in addition to his letters, are a great testament as to how the disciple of Christ should react during tough times. And I want us to look at an example in Acts 16, where Paul, when he, he went to the town of Philippi, what happened and how he responded in the face of difficulties. And it reflects almost exactly what he's saying here in these verses. This is Paul's first trip to the, to the city. He and his companions, his missionary companions, they make it to Macedonia, which is on the north side of Greece. And they make it to the town of Philippi. Now, one Sabbath day, they go outside the city to a nearby river to pray. And as they're praying, they're overheard by a, a woman named Lydia. And she responds to the gospel and she and the rest of her household are baptized. I mean, if you think for a missionary visit, so far things are going great. I mean, we just go in, we went outside to pray, and somebody comes to the gospel. She and her whole household. She was a person that was well known in the city. But as they go on, they were headed to a house of prayer. And in verse 16, Scripture says, A slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. And following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Now she continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed. And he turned and he said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. Pretty interesting. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. And the crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off of them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into the prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. You can imagine Paul and Silas, they have been beaten physically, you know, and, and this is something that they weren't expecting. They were on their way from one place to the next, and this woman was just annoying Paul and uh, with the spirit that was within her. And so it wasn't like he's going out to preach and kind of saying, okay, if things get rough, you know, and, and had his guard up. It just happened. And he's taken and they're beaten and they're put in stocks. Their hands and feet are bound inside the inner prison. So you can imagine, I mean, if that happened to you, I don't know, I mean, just put myself in that position, uh, I, I, would, I would be at a loss of what to do. I don't think at that time I would be thinking very joyfully. But in verse 25 we see, about midnight, Paul and Silas... They were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. 
When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Um, elsewhere in Acts, uh, we see that Peter was bound to some prison guards. Um, an angel came, Peter escaped, and all the guards were, were killed um, because of, of their escaping. So a guard was in charge of the people. So he knew that he was probably going to be killed. I'm going to take my life instead of having somebody do it for me. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are, still, we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. So who's, who's afraid right here? It's the guard. And he said, And after him he brought, out, uh, brought them out, and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. He took them that very hour of the night, washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household, and he brought them into the house, set food before them, rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. This is just a miraculous event. And then when day came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen to say, release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, the chief magistrates have sent to release you, therefore come out now. And Paul says, no, how about you have them come and, and tell us to come out themselves? Paul's getting bold right here. So they left the prison. In verse 40, they went out of the prison. They entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Paul and Silas that encouraged them departed. Paul, Paul was somebody who walked the walk. And if there is any area in, their, in, in life that we should look to Paul, it's his dealing with adversity. It wasn't Paul's eloquent preaching while he was in the prison, but it was his humble attitude that the jailer witnessed that brought this man to Christ. Because back in Philippians 4, 5, after Paul says to the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord and to offer up your praise for all he has done, he then tells them, he says, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The ESV says your reasonableness Now, reasonableness and gentleness, they don't quite seem like synonyms. And there's actually a third way that is translated, which is forbearance or patience. But the idea is to show restraint or graciousness. Um, The the Apostle Peter is going to use this word to contrast a gentle person with a person who is overbearing. So why would Paul say, let your gentle spirit or gracious spirit be known to all men? Because what is our normal reaction to when we're dealing with suffering, or specifically in Paul's case, persecution in Acts 16? Well, the normal reaction we feel is to fight back. There's some sort of injustice, and we might want to respond with words that um, you know, just express where we feel and where we stand. We push back against the resistance. But Paul tells the Philippians, he says, to have a gentle, forbearing, gracious attitude with those that are causing this. He knew that just like in his own circumstances, that difficult situations can be made for good. And he demonstrates that idea actually earlier on in Philippians. So not only here when he was in jail in Philippi, but earlier in in the book of Philippians in Verses 12 through 14, Paul says when he writes to them, he says, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. My imprisonment is actually furthering the gospel. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian guard, that's um, Caesar's guard, and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. So that people know that he's a follower of Christ. The whole guard knows that. He's not shrinking away from the gospel. And because he's bold enough to tell the Praetorian guard that even those that are his ministry companions are doing the same. And they feel emboldened to do so. Well, if you go to the end of the book in Philippians, in chapter 4, verses 21 through 22, how does he, how does he end it? He says, greet every, spirit, or every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you. 
especially those of Caesar's household. I mean, people in Caesar's household have heard the gospel and have trusted in the Lord. Now, this Caesar was Nero. I mean, he was a hopelessly wicked man. Nero, he killed his stepbrother. He killed his pregnant wife. He killed his mother. Some of those by his own hands or those that he commanded to do. He was accused of torching the city of Rome so he could build a palace right in the center. This man was one of the wicked, most wicked men in all the Western world. And it is in his household, in the midst of this wickedness, that some people have actually come to Jesus Christ. And we know that history tells us that when Nero would actually turn his sights against Christians, and he would persecute them severely. It's just amazing to see that because of Paul's boldness, and because um, whether it was through the gospel that he preached, or whether some of his ministry companions, that people are coming to Christ there. Now sure, not everybody that heard the gospel out of Paul's lips came to Christ. I mean, in fact, some people were hostile to them. Many people were hostile to him and the gospel he preached. But Paul tried to strive to have a gentle and patient spirit that exemplified Christ. You know, to be able to know, let others know about your forbearing and gentle spirit I mean, you have to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. If our hearts aren't transformed, a gentle spirit is just going to be an act. If our anchor is not fastened to God, you know, we're like a boat that just has a rope dangling in the waters behind us. We might be able to pretend to be forbearing, to be patient with others, but the cracks in our facade will, will soon show. And Paul was not advocating just a strategy of you know, how to win friends and influence people. It's just better to, to be kind to people. You, know, you gain more friends with honey than vinegar. But it is impossible to find joy when terrible suffering is occurring if the hope of Jesus Christ does not exist. Turning on the news would just be an act of futility. We knew there was no hope. Because even as a believer, it, it can be difficult to find joy amidst many of the things that we see and hear. But Paul is telling us, uh, he is commanding us to rejoice in the Lord. And when Paul says rejoice always, this does not mean that we are to avoid pain. This does not mean we're supposed to stuff our emotions down and never feel sorrow. Those are two different things. Our our Lord wept over Lazarus' death. And are we not to emulate him even in difficult circumstances? To rejoice, to rejoice is to find hope amidst the pain. It's to see the light that is breaking through darkness. Because Jesus knew that Lazarus would be brought back from the dead. But he wept because the situation was sad. He still rejoiced when he spoke to his sister Martha. He knew that in every difficulty and sad situation, there's an opportunity for the gospel. There's always reason to be thankful. And Paul is just echoing what Jesus did. I mean, have you ever visited somebody who was sick? Um, whether they're home or you go to the hospital, and you're like, I'm just going to go and cheer them up. And they're the ones who actually minister to you. I mean, it's a wonderful thing. You get ministered to because of a person's faith and gentle spirit. So you could ask, how could this person in the hospital offer me encouragement? How could Paul rejoice in suffering? And how could he sing in prison? How could he be ministering to the Philippians while under house arrest? The reason is, as Philippians 4, 5 says, is the Lord is near. Some translations say the Lord is at hand. Right? To be near means to be close by. Um, This could either be like a nearness spatially, like something right next to me, or it could be in regards to time, like when Jesus is coming or returning. Um, I think James echoes the idea that it's probably a closeness, that Jesus is not far off from you when he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I think there's comfort knowing that, that, that God is close by and that he is not distant. 
does not know the suffering that you are, are feeling. As you anchor yourself to the Lord through praise, you're able to transfer your load to Jesus, knowing that he's able to bear it, and he's willing to do so. So followers for Jesus Christ are told to rejoice, to praise him, to find joy amidst the difficulties, in addition to finding joy amidst the good times. And as uh, an anchor works regardless of sunshine or rain. So it's the Lord that bookends Paul's command here. He says, rejoice in the Lord, and the Lord is near. And because the Lord is the focus of our praise, and the only reason that we can praise. Now he gives another anchor, and the next anchor that will help you to weather the storms of adversity is to always give prayers to the Lord. While we are always to give praise there are plenty of times that we don't know what we're walking into. It seems like we're entering a fog and we don't know what will be on the other side and what we will face. And frankly, if you've ever driven in thick fog and had to slow down, it can be kind of scary just not knowing if a car is right up ahead of you. But Paul says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. Now, now Paul uses the word anxious. And depending on the situation, uh, to be anxious, it it can either be a good thing or a bad thing. Um, That that nervous energy, that anxiousness that you feel is not necessarily a bad thing. To be anxious when a bear is um, right in front of you is not a bad thing. Um, and actually, that word in Philippians two twenty, Paul, Paul, it's translated as concern. It's translated simply as concern. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. Paul says, "I'm concerned." Same word that he says, anxious. But when he says, you know, when he commands, pretty absolutely, be anxious for nothing, no re- no circumstances, no um, reasons. It's fairly concrete. So it seems that the admonition that he's giving here is the anxiousness that comes with worry. That comes with worry. Now God gave us compassion and the ability to empathize with others. And Paul wept over those he ministered to. Um, He was concerned for their welfare. As already mentioned, Jesus wept over Lazarus. But the root of what Paul is getting at is the consuming feelings of concern. It's that nervousness about what is going to happen next and the feeling of loss of control over a situation. I went on the website of the Anxiety and Depression Association of America just to see what the experts would say. And they said anxiety is persistent Seemingly uncontrollable and overwhelming. If it's an excessive irrational dread of everyday situations, it can be disabling. And when anxiety interferes with daily activities, you may have an anxiety disorder. Now, in America, it seems that anxiety is an epidemic. Because according to the the ADAA, their website... Um, Here's just a few facts. Anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in the U.S. It affects 40 million adults in the United States alone. That's 18% of the U.S. population. Um, It costs the U.S. around $42 billion a year. Uh, People with anxiety disorders are three to five times more likely to go to the doctor and six times more likely to be hospitalized. Uh, it includes things like eating disorders, headaches, sleep disorders, um, adult ADHD. And then for children, anxiety disorders affect one in eight children. Kids have no worries. They have no bills to pay. But that's not true. There is a sense of anxiety that overtakes one in eight of our children in the U.S., now, for some, treating anxiety can be a full-time business. I mean, imagine if you um, based your career upon helping people who were overly concerned. Just wanted to boil it down. But on the surface, you, can, you might make it seem kind of silly. But 
the fact that there are people that are paralyzed by fear, we should take note of that, many of which are unnecessary. One in five people are labeled with an anxiety disorder, and one in ten take antidepressants for these things. It just seems a little bit um, out of the, the maybe normal spectrum of what we would think would be acceptable in our country. Because we are a country that is richly blessed. You know, most people are not going to sleep not knowing whether they will have a meal the next day. Some definitely true, but as a whole, we have enough to kind of take care of our own, our basic needs. I mean, certainly there are times when fear is natural, but for those that have that ongoing and daily fear, um, Paul is about to destroy many of their therapeutic needs. Paul just simply says, stop being anxious. The antidote for your anxiety is prayer. Now, when I was on the website, I looked prayer a prayer to see if it was, you know, you know where it fit um, in, you know, what they, what they believed and what they espoused. And they listed it as a group of possible helpful options. Uh, there was a case of, like, a personal study of somebody who had put on the website that um, she tried to find help in prayer by meditating on some certain prayers, um, even trying different religions. But what ultimately helped her was finding a doctor that gave her the right medication, and she was finally lifted out of her anxiety. I mean, it's sad that God's remedy to something that's so persistent is completely neglected. And all too often, the world searches for answers in the form of a pill, or in another religion, but, but these rarely solve the problem. They never get to the main issue. That root cause of what is causing them anxiety is a spiritual issue. And maybe for a person who rejects God, that their, their greatest hope is some temporary chemical pain relief. But the, the believer has a remedy that we don't need to get a prescription for, and is much more powerful. Paul says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Paul says we should seek to void ourselves from anxiety or worry, and instead fill that void with prayer. Take our focus off of us and our problems Put our focus onto God. And Paul actually uses two words. He uses prayer or supplication. And some translate this as requests, but they're all essentially the same thing. Believers are to offer up their needs, requests, petitions, questions to the Lord. Remember Jesus' words in the Sermon of the Mount. He said in Matthew 6, 25 through 34, he says, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as what you'll eat or your drink, nor for your body or to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you being worried can add a single hour to your life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil nor spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown in the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Our, naturally, our natural fleshly response is to react to concerns and cares either by looking at our own abilities, and if that fails, which is usually the case, anxiety starts to take over. It's to look for something else for our help. And just like medicating anxiety disorders, people look for other methods to deal with symptoms of the problem and not the root cause. Some look to amusements or distractions in order to do so. 
I mean, when you step back, how easily does drugs or alcohol or video games or television or exercise or any of the things that we use in order to fix the problem, how well do they fix the problem? That problem is still there. The scripture is clear that a problem may be there to help us grow closer to the Lord. And that is why James said, consider it all joy when we face trials because the testing of your faith produces endurance. I mean, many of you know how difficult this is at times. And I know some nights I have been up at night meditating on be anxious for nothing. Why am I anxious? Be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. But that is the purpose of why Paul says exactly what he says. Be obedient to offering up your prayers to God because I'm not thinking, how am I going to solve this? How am I going to solve this? But I'm thinking, Lord, help me with my anxiousness. Do not let me be anxious because I know you are going to take care of whatever it is that is grieving me. I mean, remember, Paul cried out three times to take whatever thorn in his side, take it away from me. He pleaded, and God said, my grace is sufficient for you. So our pleading for God in those times of trouble is exactly what God wants us to do. I mean, these principles are things that I've known for years, but I seemingly forget to go to these as my first chain of command. And my wife is always saying, did you pray about that? Well, no, I didn't pray about that, and that's probably why I'm feeling the way I'm feeling. So the first thing that we need to do, I mean, just some practical matters, just be resolved that this is what we're going to do. In our hearts, we need to say, you know, yes, I'm committed to this, not just pay lip service. Yes, I know I need to pray, I need to praise God for everything, yada, 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 all those things, right? But you're resolved to do that. And then second, we need to just start doing it. Start doing it. I mean, on your way out, even if right now while I'm talking, you just need to thank God and praise Him for what He's doing. And any sort of feeling, if you're feeling burdened with anything, just let God hear your request. And He hears it and He knows and He'll comfort you and take that burden from you. Third, we need to start making it a habit. When you hear your alarm in the morning, just Thank God for this day. When you get into the shower, thank you, Lord, for warm water that instantly comes to me. Or maybe I have to wait two minutes for it. I mean, just just the things that we complain about. When you're in your car, just praise God for convenient transportation. And mean it. Just don't say it. Mean it. Because there are so many things that we can be thankful for. And that's the attitude that Paul asks us to give. And last, cultivate prayer with God. You know, find that time that is habitually, you know, that you can get into, whether it's early in the morning or in the evening or in a, a commute or whatever it is. But just don't stop there and relegate it to those times because chances are early in the morning at 6 a.m. when you're having a cup of coffee and your time with the Lord, that's not when problems strike. It's later on. You do those things to prepare yourself, but at those moments, When those issues hit, you've habitually trained yourself to respond. I praise God and I pray. Whatever this issue is, please take it from me, Lord. He might say, nope, there for your good. And you're going to grow through this. You're going to grow through this. But we have to start with the small things now because when the big things hit later, it keeps us turning to God immediately. Because like Jesus said, we are to seek his kingdom and his righteousness. We are to ask for guidance and help. And if we don't get answers right away, we'll keep coming to, coming to him. Because he knows and he sympathizes with our problems. So you're saying that I should consider it a joy when I lose a spouse to infidelity? Should I consider it a joy, Lord, when I lose a child to addiction? Should I consider it a joy when I lose a parent to cancer? I mean, this isn't easy. You know, there are things that you can do, but it just doesn't make it simple. You know, James and Paul and Jesus never said our life was going to be easy. And James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all generously, and without reproach. I mean, if you don't even know what to ask for, just, Lord, help me have wisdom through this situation. And it may not come immediately, but the Lord will provide graciously the wisdom if you ask for it.
And Paul says something similar in our passage. He says that we're to offer up prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. So I'm thankful, supposed to be thankful for the losses that I face? Yes, it, it is difficult. But yes, this, this comes as a matter of trust. And how much do I trust God? How much do I trust that he is good? How much do I trust that his promises are true? And how much do I trust that when the Bible says about him is indeed correct, that he is loving and kind and merciful and compassionate? My son Levi, um, had a, he and his brother were messing around and he got his eye scratched. And so we had to go to the doctor and they gave us these drops that you're supposed to put in his eye. And just putting something in somebody else's eye, maybe some of you can relate. It's just that, you know, some people don't like that. And so it kind of stung a little bit, and he would, you know, wriggle around and didn't want that. But he just kept saying, trust me, this is for your good. This is for your good. This medicine will help you. And even though it stings right now, it'll help you in the long run. And you know that as parents, there's many times that you've had to do that for their sake and their own good. And even though they don't understand it at the time, If they trust you, then it makes that process easier. Again, Paul doesn't say, say, you know, with a fake smile, thanks God, thank you for letting me lose my job and my house and everything that came with it. Paul is saying that the overall attitude towards God is humble submission and reverence instead of scorn and hate. When I take something away from my child, I'm more concerned that he humbly respects my decision and trusts me overbreeding content and hatred towards me. We're not to blame God, but to love him and to take shelter him in him. And, and Job is just the classic, and we're almost done. Is, he's a classic picture of the image that Paul is trying to paint. You know, he had so many things, and in one day he lost his sons and daughters, he lost his wealth, he lost his health. He even lost his wife's support. She just said, just curse God and die and let him take you out of this life. And he said, shall we accept good from God and not accept adversity? He certainly did not put on a happy face. But he received an answer. He didn't receive an answer for his issue, but could only conclude, I know that you can do all things, Lord, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared... That which I do not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I do not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. I've heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye will see you. Therefore, I retract, I repent in dust and ashes. God never gave him the answer as to why all those things happened to him, but he humbly submitted to the Lord. But I think something that he did early on that we kind of gloss over when you look at the story of Job is in those first few verses that it said that he was richly blessed man, but that he would always, every day, he would continually give sacrifices for his children because what if they had sinned? And this was something that says that he did this continually. He had a pattern in his life where he continually praised God and went to him for not only his sins, but the sins of his children. So what's the result of these things? Well, Paul says that the result of being steadfast to God and remaining supportive of Him will eventually be that the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God. I mean, this is what people desire. The 18% of Americans that are dealing with anxiety disorders, their struggle with depression, the peace of God is something that they richly would crave. And they would be satisfied with. But that peace will never come for those that find answers outside of God. And the peace is beyond our understanding. It's something that we cannot even grasp. It's a mystery to us. Witness people that have encountered difficult situations that far beyond what we have dealt with. And you just look at them and say, how can they respond with such gentleness and peace? It's a marvelous thing to behold, and it is a mystery to us as we look from the outside. It's beyond our knowledge. 
So Paul, how can you sing praises to God while sitting in a jail cell? Jesus, how can you face the cross and knowing what terrible agony it would bring? But it is the peace of God that guards the heart and the mind in Christ Jesus. It's not the strong that survive, it's the faithful. But once hope is completely lost, a person has crossed over a precipice that they cannot return from. But God will keep those that are His, He will protect them, He will guard their hearts and minds. Does not mean that believers will not endure hardship. Quite the opposite is promised in Scripture. But if we utilize the two anchors that Paul has outlined here, to give praise to the Lord and to give prayers to the Lord, and to do them always, well, when calamity strikes, we'll be much better equipped to weather the storm. But are we ready to practice that when the weather is nice? Let's pray. Lord, uh, sometimes things that hit us in our life are just way beyond what we even know how to deal with. And I just pray for those that are dealing with adversity right now, dealing with struggles, Lord, that they will continue to seek your face. And Lord, that you will give them comfort and rest. And Lord, that you will provide them with security, knowing that if they trust in you, that they are yours for eternity. And I pray for those that are not dealing with adversity right now, Lord, that we will continue to cultivate the relationship with you by just praising you and thanking you for all the wonderful things that you have blessed us with because there are so many, so innumerable to count. And to continue to pray and offer up our questions and concerns and the things that plague us and things that we don't understand and know, Lord, that you will guard our hearts and minds and that you will continue to protect us. We thank you, Lord, for your many blessings, and may we continue to do so the rest of the days of our life. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.